And we're live. Hey, friends. We are still uh, in turmoil, you can say the least. Things have not de-escalated, not the least bit. Uh, we will get more on-the-ground reporting with all the numbers very soon from Tal Hagen. First, just a few words. For everyone joining us, thank you so much. It's great to have you here. Our goal here at Sulha as a project is really to bring people together, to reconcile between people in conflict. Being an Israeli, the main conflict we focus on is the Israel-Palestine conflict. And during um, this rise in violence that we're seeing, what we're trying to do is really do our best to give a nuanced and in-depth perspective on what's going on on the ground. Social media and mainstream media are filled with one-sided narratives and a lot of toxic takes. So we're just doing our part to try to share something different. I want to talk a little bit about the concept of there are no two sides to this. We hear this echoed on social media. We hear people saying there are no two sides. And this is actually being echoed by people on both sides of the ideological spectrum. Many on the left are view things in terms of oppressed versus oppressor. This is an obvious case where one group has way more power, Israel. And um, Israel, as the person in power, should take more responsibility. This is the narrative. With great power comes great responsibility. And it, Israel has not done much to change the status quo of the past 10 plus years. Some would even say the past 30, 50, 70 plus years. Right? The one who holds the power has not done enough to bring about change. Now, I, I recognize that some will hear this and be like, of course Israel has tried to bring about change. I'm simply sharing the narrative of the side who view this, this as a simple oppressed versus oppressor. Israel has not done enough. They have the power. They have not done enough. Um, the retaliation to Hamas, while is certainly not genocidal like much of the media and social media claims it to be, it does, though, cause harm to civilians. There's no denying that. Not only physical harm, but deep emotional harm it causes to civilians. Israel's approach to retaliation is to cause maximum infrastructural damage and to Hamas in infrastructure and maximum damage to Hamas personnel while minimizing civilian harm. But that being said, causing maximal infrastructural damage in a densely populated uh, city like Gaza City causes civilian deaths. And it's true. It's true that Hamas purposely places headquarters and rocket pads in populated areas. When we kill, when Israel kills Gazan children in airstrikes, that makes Hamas happy because it makes us look bad in the international community. This is part of the game. That's true. And it's not uncommon for Israelis or people who support Israel to see Israel's response as perfectly justified. But at the same time, given our power, given the collateral damage that our strikes cause, given the fact that it hasn't even been seen to weaken Hamas substantially, we need to be able to understand 
we need to be able to understand why the international community, why people are upset with this. They have every right to be concerned about civilians being killed. Yet, when we look at Hamas, Israel's enemy, they are a brutal enemy. They are intentionally shooting rockets at civilian populations. Their, Their target is not to minimize civilian harm, it's in fact to maximize civilian harm. Um, they have genocidal intentions. They refuse to recognize Israel's existence, right? This is the enemy that Israel is dealing with. So while one frames it as simply oppressed versus oppressor, the other frames it as a good guy who's just defending their people against a brutal terror organization. But in fact, both sides are speaking a certain truth. With great power comes great responsibility. And yet, Israel's enemy, Hamas, is a brutal one. And while the oppression of the Palestinian people is certainly relevant and should be of concern, them being oppressed does not, by default, justify anything and everything Hamas can ever do. And we see the international community being okay with with this. And the Jews see it. The Jews see that the that rockets are shot at Israelis, people don't seem to care because they have the power, right? The framing of powerful versus weak kind of break down when you look at civilians. Do you think that a mother who loses her child in Israel to rocket fire feels better because she knows that her nation is powerful? No, a loss of life is a loss of life. And and, and the one-sidedness is how, it, how it's framed is troubling to many Israeli and many Jews around the world. Again, we must, in conflicts such as these complex conflicts, we must always try, try to understand both truths. And generally, it's not as simple as there are no two sides to this. Again, if anybody says... There are no two sides to this. It is, in fact, simple. You can conclude from that that they are extremely biased and that they don't have a great grasp of the intricacies of this conflict. I'll leave it with that. We have a lot of work to do. Always try to learn both truths and reconcile between them two. It's not one or the other. It's both. Israel has great responsibility, yet yet Hamas must be held accountable. And just because Hamas is shooting rockets at Israel, that doesn't mean Israel can do whatever they want in response and not expect condemnation. That's not how it works. The world has every right to condemn Israel if they feel like their response is harming civilians. With that... We're going to bring on Tal Hagen. Before, I do want to shout out our, our patrons, our pa- our visionary patrons. We have Trivium Energy PTY LTD. We have SOG Cannabis. We have Max Marine. We have Geffen Posner. Adam Albilia. And our one and only champion member, Rajia. It's really our patrons who help us do what we do and put out more content. If you want to become a patron or support the show in other ways, you can find links in the description. And with that, 
let's bring Tal Hagen on. Hello. Good evening. Oh. So, um, all the data that I'm going to be giving you at this moment, I'm going to be including sources, but at the same time, understand that these are the current uh, the data from 7.30, uh, so an hour ago. So these things could have already been updated by now. So as of now, uh, 129 Palestinians have so far been killed, including 58 children and 34 women, while 1,235 have been wounded. This is according to the Ministry of Health in Gaza, which is run by Hamas. Um, they do not differentiate between the men that are militants and civilians, nor do they, they separate the deaths due to Hamas rocket misfires and casualties of the IDF strikes. So all we know is the general number of the strikes, but we don't actually know what exactly caused each strike. It's quite obvious in my own opinion that it's the majority of the casualties are due to the IDF. But at the end of the day, in terms of credibility, it's important for us to have all the information and know exactly what killed what. Uh, in terms of Palestinians evacuating their homes, as of now, 19,000 plus people have evacuated their homes and they've had this uh, sought out uh, refugee at one of 41 shelters across Gaza, according to UNRWA. Um, in Israel, nine civilians have been killed by Hamas rockets. One soldier was killed by an anti-tank missile, and this is according to the IDF. At this point in time, 2,900 and 2,900 plus rockets have been fired into Israel since last Monday. Um, of course, there's also around 400 to 600 that they're saying fell short into Gaza, but it's not exactly understood by me. I'm seeing different reports on exactly how many were fired. Uh, the reason going back on the casualties, why it's important right now, we know from a few different sources from the Children for Palestine, the Defense for Children in Palestine, as well as a few Israeli sources as the IDF, can only confirm up until now one case of a Hamas rocket falling short into Gaza and killing eight civilians, including two children. Um, there's also a report recently of a RPG, a, a rocket-propelled grenade, that struck and killed a child in Gaza, but they still haven't investigated it. They don't know who killed the child as of yet. And so... I wanted to actually explain why this is important and not, well, maybe you're doing this because you don't want to put fault on the IDF. It actually comes from what happened during Operation Protective Edge. I have the numbers here from Operation Protective Edge that occurred in 2014. According to the different investigations that took place, according to Israel, 2,125 people in Gaza were killed. According to Hamas, 2,310 were killed. And according to the UN, 2,251. Also in those investigations, according to Hamas, 70% of, of the people killed in Gaza were civilians, the UN 65% were civilians, and Israel 36% were civilians, 44% were militants, and 20% were men who were unidentified whether or not they were civilians or uh, militants. Why is it important to understand this information? It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It's important to understand the raw data and where it comes from. So when you're hearing reports coming out from Gaza, understand that that current number in Gaza is referring to both casualties by Hamas and the IDF in Gaza, as well as civilians and militants. There is no differentiation by the Ministry of Health in Gaza as to who are militants and who are um, innocent civilians. So that's uh, all to know as of now. 
Thank you so much, Tal. You know, ever since uh, meeting you, I, I stopped watching the news because I just, you just come on here, you know, you break it down better than anyone. Um, I want to talk more about the, the tower that was taken down yesterday, that Israel bomb, that was Al Jazeera and Associated Press headquarters, but it was also Hamas Intelligence. According, right, that, to that, according to the IDF. What's, what's the scoop on that? Um, there are a few reports coming out. There's currently a, a report being pushed by a lot of um, pro-Israel organizations of a former spokesperson of Obama during his administration saying that during 2014, uh, the AP knew or there's a suggestion that the AP and AJ, the news organizations that were near knew about Hamas firing rockets outside the building, but they were threatened not to. Um, even if this is true, um, he actually clapped back at all the comments saying that it was a confirmed source. He said he thought so. But even if this was true, it doesn't confirm that there was Hamas operation facilities within the actual building. Um, according to some sources, uh, the IDF has provided, Israel has provided America with conclusive proof that there was um, a good reason to strike the building, but it still hasn't been shown publicly. Uh, me personally, I think that it isn't very important to show the actual public information. I think that also it'll help in terms of Israel's justification for the strike. But also, if it does turn out to be true, there's a lot of questions then to be pointed at the AP and AJ in terms of their association and what they knew or didn't know. But we don't know. As of yet, we still don't have any conclusive information on it. What, what's the process to get to the bottom of something like that? Like is uh, it's, uh, it's continuously following the story, waiting for more and more updates to come. Uh, just because a new information comes in that supports your opinion, that doesn't mean it's true. For example, I'm, I'm seeing this is mainly from right now. It's more, you know, it looks more like against Israel in terms of us destroying a building that was used by a lot of different media channels is us as in Israel. And so, Right now, it's on the job of pro-Israel media to try to justify that. So I've seen a lot of different pro-Israel organizations trying to push that it was justified using one source from one individual. And of course, because it fits their narrative, they're going to push it. I can promise you that if it was a pro, it was a, a more likely a pro-Palestinian site saying the exact opposite, that he worked in the building and there was no such thing as any types of sites, then they wouldn't be pushing the story. Every side right now is going to be pushing the story in their way or another. Just keep following the story, and eventually it's going, well, we'll know the full report. Eventually, at the end of these type of conflict, there's always an investigation that takes place, and it could take a while. There are investigations that can take a month, two months, years. It really depends. But as of now, if you're going to be talking about the event, you have to say the IDF struck a, multi, a multi-story tower in Gaza that was used by um, the media. The IDF claims that Hamas was using it for military military purposes. As of now, we don't have any conclusive evidence that this is correct, and that's it. There, there is no building on to that because we don't know yet. Or if you want to give a justification or delegitimize it, you have to be very much aware to um, open to your audience saying, if it comes out that it's not true, then one, two, three. And if it comes out that it is true that Hamas was harboring weaponry or machinery inside that building, then one, two, three. Thank you. Do you know the state of uh, ceasefires if uh, 
it's being negotiated? Have they been have ceasefires? So just now, just about a half an hour ago, uh, the UN there was a UN the resolution, and the United States once again uh, rejected pushing a ceasefire. Also, Israel as well. What seems to have happened is there was going to be talks in within Israel uh, about having a ceasefire. But the IDF has pushed for there not to be a ceasefire because they're saying that they want to eliminate more of Hamas uh, targets before any ceasefire is uh, even talked about. And that it seems that that's what was agreed upon now. So we could see this going on for a couple more days. Okay. So that, that brings me to an interesting point. You know, we, we always talk about how we just are only seeing one side, like people generally... Israel under attack, Gaza under attack. That, that's how it works. What we're trying to do is create a world where more people are able to understand that both their governments are responsible. The people of both sides are victim by this. Sure, one side is obviously feeling it worse, but that doesn't take away that the people are losing and governments should be held responsible. This is the approach we're, we're really trying to spread um, and hopefully by in spreading approaches similar to these, we get to the point where we don't need to speak about conflict because we, you know, we have peace on the land, right? That's, that's really our end goal here. But the pro-Israel side that, and, and I, you know, I think the single best way to get credibility, if you want to be an activist is to be able to criticize your own side. If you don't, if you only support your side and criticize the other side, then you have no legitimacy generally as an activist. You're only speaking to those who already agree with you instead of changing your mind. Can I refine your point? Because I, I think sure. it's a little bit misconstrued. Because here's the thing. It's not about question your side as well, because what if my side's correct and their side is wrong? What you should be doing is give your side's points the same scrutiny that you give the others as in the same, the amount, the exact same time that you do, you demand all these sources and evidence from uh, Hamas to prove their claims. You have to, the exact same thing from the idea. You can't uh, criticize one side for things that they do and not do it to the other side in terms of it's not, even if I think I'm right, if I see a story from a pro-Israel media and I don't see any sources for it and it's just a random claim and there's no clear understanding of what's happened there. I need to ask. I can't just assume it's right because it fits into my narrative. If it's, if I ask the question and it turns out right, great. It's another uh, point on my side in terms of me being right, but I need to criticize it to the same degree that they do. We see this a lot uh, right now. I'm, I've been watching from a lot of pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian activists online talking about fake news uh, by either pro-Israeli activists or anti-Israel activists. They're each talking about how to identify fake news and fake reporting from the other side, but they're never actually talking about how to identify false information from their own side. Um, and that that's where I really see the issue is that ask the, the same scrutiny that you put on your, your enemy, put it on yourself as well. Cool. I like the way you put that. So if we're in a situation where Israel rejected a ceasefire for the pro-Israel camp, it's entirely disingenuous to continue to 
cry about rocket fire without giving a greater context that it could have been stopped by a ceasefire. Right. Again, this doesn't mean we deserve rocket fire. Of course not. And this doesn't mean that the rocket fire is okay. But our side, right, the side that we want to defend is so greatly had an opportunity to stop rocket fire. And they said no, because they wanted to continue to strike from us. You can say that was the right decision. We should continue to strike Hamas. But then you need to understand that with no ceasefire, the rockets will fall. So it's disingenuous to make it seem like Israel is blindly under attack when our government had the opportunity to stop it. And we didn't. I mean, you could talk about the larger picture here, which is that, you know, a lot of Israelis, the reason that a lot of Israelis support the um, ongoing strikes on Gaza is because they don't want this to uh, happen again in another five years where we have another conflict where people are under threat again, like we had in 2014. And now we have it again here in 2020. And we had it in 2008 and they always come back stronger. So, you know, exactly. So, but there's two different questions here. It's important also for the audience to understand why Israelis are a lot of Israelis support no ceasefire. It's not about, um, to them, they don't, in their eyes, there's, there is no, um, solution. The only solution is destroying Hamas. They're a militant entity. There is no such thing as peace agreements with them. There is no such thing as them ever accepting our existence. So we just have to hit them as hard as we can. And if the IDF has decided to change its position and just hit them as hard as they can until they can take until they can take them out, then why not? Then that's that's the position that a lot of Israelis have when they. Uh, when they talk about not accepting the ceasefire, that, that's from Israel's point of view and why they're not accepting the ceasefire, which is important to understand. I think the larger question that I think a lot of people at Sulcha and also in the Discord talk about is changing that narrative of instead of just us trying to find military solutions, are there other solutions to this? Um, just as people have talked about how the fact that um, we've seen in history where uh, enemies have been able to come together and have peace agreements. We're seeing where Israel is able to make these different diplomatic um, agreements with other countries, which a few years ago was never thought possible. In the future, we might be able to not probably have a peace agreement with Hamas, but slowly try to build relations with Palestinians, either living in Israel, uh, living in Gaza or Palestinians under the military control in the West Bank. But it is important to understand why Israeli support. It doesn't have to do just, we just want to bomb Palestinians. I think it's important for, to understand where are For, for it's sure. Not, it's, not, it's not vengeance. It's right. not coming from vengeance. It's coming from more of um, where we're scared that this is going to happen again. And we don't want us to be attacked. They're not thinking about the other side. They're only thinking about their own safety. And in terms of how, when you're thinking about your family, you think about your family first and everyone else later. And so, People here, what we're trying to do, I think, essentially is try to opening that instead of just thinking about your family, try to think of the bigger picture, because we think that at the end of the day, it only harms you more by, by you not thinking about the other people. Yeah. Cool. Um, I do see some questions. We'll start. We'll start taking some questions. Uh, th- so this is actually something that's been been coming up a lot. Uh, Matt Crack 12 says, um, have you all discussed the situation with BB using the situation to stay in power and avoid his corruption here? So I'm hearing this on both sides that 
Hamas initiated this because it, it strengthens them. Ari also, who joined us, uh, Ari Brodsky, who joined us in the last stream, gave a very interesting analysis just on that. And we're hearing also that Netanyahu, this is good for Netanyahu, it's going to help him stay in power. Some are saying it's collusion between the two, probably a little bit more on the conspiratorial end of things to say that they colluded in this. But is there a case that can be made that both Hamas and Bibi gained from this? Yeah, of course. In politics, what, uh, there are different sides that can gain from it. Hamas has gained a lot more. Um, the PLO, I mean, we already saw different reports of people trying attacking the PLO. Uh, the, you have the PLO, you have Fatah, and you have um, Hamas. They were going to have an upcoming election. And we're seeing in this recent conflict with Hamas. Let's let's go off that they didn't start this conflict um, from a political standpoint. They saw Al-Aqsa under attack in their eyes, so they attacked us because they wanted to defend um, the Palestinians over here. It's gained them a lot of support because the PLO hasn't really done anything, Palestinian Authority. They haven't done anything right now. Um, and Hamas is in the headlines. It's Hamas um, saving the people against Israel. So they're going to gain a lot of support over the PLO. And you have in Israel, you have a much more right-wing government. And it, our, the Israeli right-wing government is a much more military-framed um, government. It's not really about negotiations. It's much more us versus them. And they've also gained from this. Uh, by taking a stronger stance. This could be one of the reasons what led to Netanyahu after, remember, Netanyahu has been our, our prime minister for 12 years, and only suddenly now he decides uh, that now is the last stand when we decide to take out all of Hamas's capabilities, not in 2014 when we were already in Gaza with um, ground troops on the ground. So they are going to take advantage of these situations. I think in every single conflict they do. Uh, there's always politicians who are going, a conflict is going to happen, and it's a great moment for people to take advantage of it in every sense of the word. Yeah, I, I agree. When it comes to politicians capitalizing on, on situations, there's no denying that there's a, lot of, there's a lot to gain. We don't always know if, if they initiated a conflict in order to gain or if it was a series of events and they just happen to be capitalizing on, on it. I think in this case, and, and again, we, we need to make some kind of assumption uh, here because there's obviously, we're not, we're not going to find reports saying that, you know, Bibi said he's going to start striking Hamas to go in power, right? So it, it needs to be just an intelligent assumption based off um, whatever ev evidence we have or just our, you know, our experience in, in analyzing certain situations. So I think that it's likely that the quickness of the escalation is related to, to knowing that there would be some political gain. So, for example, we stormed Al-Aqsa. Was that decision um, made simply because there were rioters there or was there, was there a want to um, – continue to escalate. We don't know, but I, I think the case can be made that I mean, that was speculation. We can't, it's better. No, no, exactly. I'm not. It's yeah. also understanding that these type of assumptions can lead to incitement. And so it's also important to remember that. Okay. That's fair. But then we're kind of left with nothing then, then we can't even make any, like we can't even suspect. Right. So the, the, the only thing we're left with is to say politicians can gain from, from conflict, but we, but to suspect that they had a hand in escalating it, you're saying that's always a no-go. Not that they didn't have a hand. I think 
that you're saying that we can't sit. Sorry, you froze for a minute. I think sometimes it's about being careful about when it's more from a conspiratorial side of you, when it's like they were, they've been planning this all along to incite um, Palestinians. And then we would have a justification to attack um, Hamas because we knew Hamas was going to attack us because that is completely conspiratorial because there is no evidence to back that up. What we do know is that every decision made is based on certain issues. And we know that Netanyahu, there was a chance for Netanyahu to lose his position, his power recently with the coalition government on the opposition. And so this could have been a really good chance that he's like, you know what, Um, I'm going to show everyone just how strong we are and I'm going to hit Hamas as hard as I've ever, we've ever hit them. And so that could be, that's what I mean by the difference between how we present it. Yeah. And I I would say an easier conclusion to reach is that Hamas responding to us storming Al-Aqsa, because it seems like that's what caused them to shoot the rockets. The fact that we stormed Al-Aqsa on one of the holiest days, that they saw that as a great opportunity for them to steal the attention away from the PLO to once again be the heroes. And, you know, uh, we're going to have a Gazan on the show on Tuesday evening. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and, I, and I, I spoke to him briefly today, and he, sh- he shared the same thing. He said, Hamas benefits from this conflict because it, they are seen as the protectors and the saviors. Um, a lot of the critique against Hamas kind of goes to the background because they're seen as as defending the people of Gaza. That, that's how it's perceived, right? Um, and then once rocket fire was shot, this is the perfect entrance because we do respond. Um, we respond to rocket fire with airstrikes. The question is, it could have been a very basic tit for tat, but our response was one of force. We said, you know what, we're going to take this opportunity to really hinder Hamas's capabilities. At least that's on the record for the reason. It's possible that there was some political motivation there. Would you accept that framing of it, Tal? Yes. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> no, uh, it, it, we came to an agreement. I, I always expect those around me to keep me in check and uh, ever tell me if you think I say something problematic. That's how we uh, improve ourselves. Yeah. Let's let's take some more. Have you seen any questions in the chat you'd like to um, um I know. Well, I'm gonna turn off my phone. I have my alerts for Yeah, no, no problem. So I saw Ian. Ian goes to door. Were you surprised that Israel had bunker buster bombs? No. Is that new? I think no. Haven't they had those for years? Um I know, for example, I do know that. Um, we weren't supposed to get um, buster bu- bunker buster bombs from the United States or Iran, but right as it was supposed to be shipped to us, it was uh, canceled. Interesting. Were, were bunker buster bombs recently used in some of the airstrikes? I don't know. I'm right now looking. So, uh, yeah, Ian, if you, if you can maybe oh, explain actually, what you're referring I think I know what they're talking about. They're... There's reports of it. I don't know if it's it's 100%, but there was reports of a missile that hit. I actually saw the photo a few days ago where it looks like it has little wings on the side. And one of the bunker, it's very similar to a lot of bunker buster bombs that have those little wings to make them hit. But it could just be a very similar, because I do know that, I think it's called the Spice Missile by one of the aerospace inju- industries where it's just for it to be able to um, be fired from very, very far away and get to its target. So I don't know if that's, is that confirmed that we used it or is that just speculation based on a photo? 
Because you have to remember, there's tons of different types of weaponry and ammunition. I don't. Yeah. So actually, I I didn't really realize that they that Israel didn't have them. I just figured, yeah, sure, why not? Why would it be? But uh, okay. Um, anything else? You see questions. Eliezer, I see you're asking about the Associated Press and Al Jazeera building. We did cover that. You can see it towards the beginning of the episode. Yeah, that was talked about earlier, right in the beginning of this uh, live stream. So afterwards, Raja, you ask how much of the Knesset is talking about peace with Palestinians. Um, an unfortunate. A very unfortunate little amount of the day-to-day Knesset dialogue has to do with uh, resolving the conflict. The status quo has kind of been accepted as, at least by the government that's been in power for over a decade now, accepts the status quo as is and does not do, pretty much does not not do anything to, to resolve the conflict. I'm just going to comment because I see Ophir said something in the chat and, sure. it's, and it's tingling my uh, media bias senses. Yeah, go for it. Um, she, says, uh, she or he says uh, Sky News Australia is the only channel that makes sense. That's most likely because it fits with your agenda because I've been following every single mainstream new media site and every single one of them says something else. Um, so it most likely it makes sense because it agrees with what your political beliefs are. Yep, fair. Now, Rajid, back to what you asked about how much Israel focuses on um, on the conflict. Not much. And, and this, we need to understand this as, we need to look more into this, right? Because if it's not priority from them, and Palestinians are not happy with their current situation, Right. They're not. They don't like waiting at checkpoints. They don't like living under another nation's military. rule, And no people would like this. What should Palestinians do to uh, impact change? So they can't they haven't had elections in how many years now? Also over a decade, 15 years, I believe there haven't been Palestinians. Right. So they can't vote for their own governments. If they try to fight their governments, they'll be pretty brutally punished, perhaps killed. And they can't vote for our government. Palestinians very much feel hopeless. Their back's against the wall. Uh, With each new settlement, they feel like more of their land is being taken. Every time their family member gets arrested or waits at a checkpoint, again, this adds to their anger and collective trauma. What are they meant to do? Seriously, what are they meant to do? When someone's back is against the wall the way that there are, with such levels of desperation, this is what breeds violence. This is where we get violence from. Will violence ultimately help? It's hard to say. We've seen in the past that when there's violence between us, on one hand, the Palestinians always get the worst end of the deal. But... We also have seen that violence has triggered a renewal of peace talks, right? So there almost may even be a justification here if we look at it historically. I personally urge my Palestinian brothers and sisters 
to follow in the footsteps of somebody like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, who really showed the world what a peaceful revolution can look like. I think this is something that's been missing from the Palestinian struggle for 70 plus years. That, that being said, it's not, it's not like it's so cut and dry, so easy for a population to just rise up and start a peaceful revolution and, and get, the, get the occupying force to either leave and give them sovereignty or make them equal citizens of their land. So that is such a challenging path, right? Again, this does not mean we should not have expectations of Palestinians um, to, to elevate themselves and work for liberation. We most certainly can, but there's a common narrative amongst Israeli society that there's nothing we could do. It's all in their hands. It's all in their hands. We've tried. They reject. It's up to them. But really, what can they do, right? Now, on the other hand, what can we do? Well, we have the power, we can vote, but what exactly, what steps can our government actually take to solve a conflict? Very few people can actually explain A to Z coherently, right? So it's not, it's not so simple. This is why people who try to simplify the conflict into, yeah, just end the occupation and there'll be peace. What does that mean to end the occupation? Unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank? Does that mean we uproot all the... Jewish citizens that that live there, which will likely cause a civil war. But let's say we do do that. Fine. Pull back to 67. What do we do with Jerusalem? Let's say we solve that. Will that actually ensure security? Many Palestinians are not shy in their aspirations to uh, actually liberate all of Palestine. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Why should why should Israelis trust the unilateral uh, withdrawal from the West Bank when it seems very unlikely to actually resolve a conflict? This is, a, this is a complex conflict, without a doubt. One thing that helps is to not simplify it to it's on them, it's all in their hands, they can do it, they started it, it's their fault. That's not how we're going to solve this. We need all individuals, all individuals from the room who actually care to elevate themselves and mobilize towards a common goal. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take an alliance between Israelis and Palestinians. It's the only way we can do this. Tal, feel free to... Hey, um, I actually want to respond to one of the commentators. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll pull it up. Which one? No, you don't need to pull it up, but I'm just going to say it. Um, is that one of the commentators I came off patronizing to. And I'm first like sorry for that. I, I think I was trying to just... I saw the comment about... Um, you know, specifically looking at a certain media channel and that they seem to be projecting a better reality. And I instantly assume that that means that you're not looking at other media channels. And that was my mistake. So that was a wrong assumption that I made. Um, so I'm sorry for that. That's it. Cool. That's what we're all about. Personal responsibility, owning your shit and making things better. So Matella goes, Palestinians need a new president. Yeah, I, I agree. I'd like to replace all the leadership. The question is, what, what, what can Palestinians do or what can Israelis do to, to uh, get a boss out of it? It's not, it's not quite clear. Tal, do you have any? Uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I frame it as very complex with no clear solution. And, and I actually do stand by that. But I think that there's a lot that we can begin to do now. 
that doesn't put anybody at existential threat, there's a lot we can do. Okay, And we need to start thinking long term. Our political systems are not built for long term. They're built for short term. Politicians are looking to win the next election, not for creating peace in the land 10, 20 years down the line. Okay, So we need to understand that our political system is not built in a way to produce long term solutions. It's a shame. It, this honestly almost uh, strengthens the need for like a, a benevolent monarch or dictatorship. Um, they might have the tools necessary because they're thinking long term. I'm not really advocating to get get rid of our democracy. Don't don't take it that way. But if you want to do find a benefit to monarchy, that it's that we we need to start first of all on a government level, right? Our military presence in the West Bank causes quite severe harm to the Palestinians. Not just, not, not just, most of it's not even physical harm. It's emotional and psychological harm. Being controlled by a population that is not your own, by a force that is not your own, plays a psychological toll. It's humiliating. Um, it, it, it's really like, we need to really try to understand what it feels like to not be able to go to work without waiting at a checkpoint a checkpoint of people who don't speak the same language as you and don't treat you with respect. Like we need to imagine what that feels like, or what that feels like to not be subject to civil court. If you get in some kind of trouble, Oh, you're under military court. Like we need to understand what that feels like. And we need to understand that the Palestinian experience radicalizes the Palestinians. People ultimately are products of their environment, right? So it's often, Shown, you know, we often look at Palestinian numbers, uh, you know, how many Palestinians support violent resistance. And, and many Israelis point to that as a sign that we can never have peace with, with our Palestinian neighbors. Yet it's, envir- it's our environment that brutalizes us. How can we change the, in- our environment? How can we change the environment of the Palestinian people so a generation is born that sees us as a neighbor, that, that recognizes our right to live here on this land? Now, we can't control all of it. Some of it's going to need to come from the Palestinian side, with that, without a doubt. That's why I say it's going to take all of us. But if we make the, our military presence in the West Bank less felt, that is certainly a major first step. I call for removing the military and replacing it with a civilian force. A civilian force of highly trained And when I say highly trained, it's not just training in combat, but I mean training in engagement. They need to they need to know fluent Arabic. They need to be trained to engage Palestinians with dignity and respect. This force over time should begin to be a force of Israelis and Palestinians together, a dual keep peace, peacekeeping force on the land, not a military force that is seen as foreign, but one that is just meant to keep the people safe. This is within the realm of possible, but the political, the, the amount this idea is being talked about in politics is close to zero. That's on a political level. At a cultural level, we need to start to teach our citizens about the other. Israelis need to know the Palestinian narrative. We need to recognize the Palestinian struggle. We need to recognize the Nakba instead of deny its existence. We need to learn Arabic. We need to learn how to engage with Palestinians with respect. Individuals have the ability to, to change the face of the conflict. We have spammers. Uh, um, Should be a moderator, I think. Yeah, if, if uh, Zach's here, can you 
hop in moderating. If somebody else wants to moderate, then um, message me on Discord. I'll give you admin rights. Guys, just post a bunch of Israeli flags. Like you don't you don't convince anybody. Like, that's just not an argument, you know. Same with the Free Palestine messages. Like that's not cool. Like cool, dude. Good good point. Um, so we need, we really need to teach each other's narrative and each other's language so we could communicate with one another. Right? These are just two things. One on a political, one on a cultural level. We can do to get us so much closer to achieving peace on this land. If we were to, to dedicate ample resources and energy towards peacekeeping the way we do towards military, well, then I just gave two quite simple ideas. I'm sure we could write books on the amount of things we could do in order to change the face of the conflict. Yet instead, our focus is strength, defense, militarism. Soldiers are seen as heroes while peacemakers are ridiculed. This is a cultural problem. And, and this is true on both sides. This is a cultural problem we need to overcome. Uh, I'm going to do some, some, I'm going to get rid of some spammers. Tal, you want to share some thoughts? Uh, I think. uh, Disagree. Share a different perspective. So in terms of going back to 1948 or 1967, there is about recognition. I think that um, you have to realize that for a lot of Israelis, when you're saying Nakba, the way that we see it very differently also, Israelis and Palestinians see the Nakba also in a very different light. It's the same way that, Palestinians see the Independence Day. It's also not as simple as people say, evicted or not, fled, they fought us, we fought them. It's more complicated than that. And so I don't think you can just sum it up in the sentence that we should recognize this or we should recognize that. I think that what we need to do today is trying to have more nuanced conversations. For example, something that I see with with regard to Israel that I don't see with any other nation, which I think revolves around a lot of the conflict that we have here is when we talk about, for example, um, what America was doing in different Middle Eastern countries or what was it doing in terms of its um, foreign policies. And if a country was being oppressed or subjugated by the United States, we didn't look at every American as responsible for that. We looked at the government responsible for that. Um, same thing goes for the UK, same thing goes for France, uh, China, Russia. I don't look at a Russian and blame them for, um, things that their president Putin has done. And so this is something I see that's quite strictly with Israelis that you'll see this on also Palestinians by Israelis, Israelis and Palestinians. That's quite unique with us that if you mention anything to do with Israel or Palestine in any sense of the word, even if it's just about you cooking a meal, you're going to get a lot of hate comments. Um, a lot of people are going to harass you, call you to die. I see in the comments also right now, people uh, shouting and it doesn't really help because for example, you come with this immediate bias. They, they come into a chat room like this and they immediately assume that we support every single action the government does. And they, we support every single action the government does based on their perception of our government without understanding the way that we perceive the government. Now, there is a chance that maybe we perceive the government wrong and they perceive it right. But it's important to understand where our justification comes from. Because, for example, I've gotten um, comments saying, uh, you know, you, you personally support the killing of children, right? And it's like totally disconnected from reality. It's something that I fight against in terms of 
what Israel does, what I've seen Palestinians do. I always fight against these type of things that I see happen. Yet they they everything that Israel done is in whatever single government has done. Remember, we also have had different governments that have done different things. There have been different Palestinian leaders who have done different things. And we clump everyone together into one uh, narrative. And you're either Palestinian or you're Israeli. And if you're Palestinian, you support ABC. If you're Israeli, you support ABC. And that's it. There is no nuance. You're not a human being anymore. You're a set of ideals. And it's, it only brings more harm. If you want to understand from my own perspective in terms of what I've gone through, I grew up in Israel with a very specific take of Palestinians because all I ever saw in the media, the only time I ever heard about Palestinians when I grew up here was uh, different attacks on civilians by specific individuals or what different Palestinian leaders were saying about Jews and Israelis. And so I had a real fear of Palestinians. I never wanted to talk to any because I thought they all just wanted to kill me, every single one of them. And this is a fear that I grew up with um, because of my specific surroundings, because I lived in a specific bubble. When I was 16 years old, I found myself in a program in the summer named Nessia. And I found myself sitting across a, uh, a guy my age who was Palestinian. And it was very surreal to be suddenly forced into a situation where I had to sit down and listen to what they had to say. And that led me on a path of trying to understand different perspectives and trying to, and realizing that it's not black and white and that not every Palestinian and not every Israeli thinks the same. And it, I got from a very ignorant and racist and um, harmful mindset um, due to fear that I was able to let go of because of the conversations I had along the way with these individuals that I had. And it was able to open me up to more and more uh, conversations from Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, and Palestinians. I've also spoken recently to Palestinians who live in Gaza. Um, and that was really incredible for me to be able to speak to an individual who I thought was completely on the other side of the spectrum in terms of someone who I could talk to. And so these small conversations that we're able to have can really build peace. This is the whole point I see about Tzolka. I don't think that we're suddenly going to be able to switch the leadership in five years or that suddenly the entire situation is going to change without it being very bloody and violent. But I think that slowly having conversations where we're sitting down face-to-face -face with Israelis and Palestinians, it helps us understand each other's narratives, where we're coming from, and the basis of those narratives. So we can strip away the falsehoods that each of us have built on our own narratives because we don't understand the full picture and come to some type of conclusive answer as to what is the future. Well put, well put. I see, I, so YouTube algorithm seems to have done work with this. Uh, I, I think it pushed this out to, in India. So hello our, to our Indian viewers now. Seeing a lot of people say uh, India stands with Israel. Well, we appreciate that. I, as an Israel, will say, though, don't blindly support anybody. Um, our, our alliance is great and will continue to be strong allies uh, for many years to come. But I want India to stand with Israel and Palestine simultaneously. That, that, that's what I'd like to see. Um, 
We're changing the paradigm, the picking side paradigm. We're not about that lifestyle here. Now, to, to our Indian friends here, I, I want to start doing sulha sessions between Indians and Pakistanis. This is something that I've been thinking about for a while. Right now, we're only touching on Israel-Palestine because of what's going on. But if any Indian here wants to start helping and, you know, doing these sessions, these dialogues between Indians and Pakistanis, please reach out to me and you can become our official Indian Sulha community manager of sorts. So the dude that just keeps spamming Turkey in the chat, like, cool. Turkey's great. I've been there five times. But it's like, if you want, if you want to, like, um, advocate for Turkey... Just saying Turkey is not convincing. People will be like, Turkey is a great place. We have awesome food and beaches and this and that. Like, at least explain something. Like, hey, give us a little something to work with, bro. But, yeah, I put you on a, on a five-minute timeout for that. Sorry. I, I want to. Just uh, responding to Ahava. Yeah, just real quick. Real quick. Real, Kalon writes, I was mad at Israelis until I came to this channel and got to see in, his, in Israeli I got to see an Israeli person, see both sides, and it opened my eyes that Israelis are not all bad. So thanks for writing this, Kalong. And you won't believe how many of these messages we get both from Israelis, Palestinians, and their supporters. This works. This actually has an impact. So thank you, uh, Kalong. And that's really one of many messages we've got in this fight. And so uh, what is what Abbas said in terms of the program, it was called Nasiya. Um, it sadly did not get the funding that it needed, so it didn't continue after uh, 2017. Mm. It's also that sad that a lot of programs were really was, the program was essentially uh, Jewish. Uh, it was a Jewish program between Israeli and Americans who Americans came to Israel, American Jews, and we went around the country um, talking with Israelis and Palestinians, trying to understand the conflict more. And so it really was, that was the first eye-opening moment that I had that it's not as simple as I think it is. And there's a lot of things that I've been told that aren't exactly true or they're not the full picture. And it was really eye-opening for me. I think that because emotions are a really big part of this conflict in terms of the personal tragedies and suffering that a lot of us have gone through, and losing people that we care about, the only way for us to change our own narratives or opinions or be open to listening to a different opinion that we think is viable is if we ourselves are forced into the situation, how I was kind of forced into a situation where I had to listen to a Palestinian narrative. Because for example, if it's on a YouTube video, I can simply click away and I don't have to listen to it if I don't like what I'm hearing. But suddenly when I'm sitting across an individual who we're both the same age, we're both guys, we both uh, like doing the same activities, yet we share completely opposite ideologies. It makes you think, why are we so different in these ideologies, and where does that stem from? I, um, it seems like now the YouTube algorithm has taken us to Turkey. Hi, Turkey. Merhaba. Good to see you here. YouTube, if you're listening, can you push us out far and wide in Israel and Palestine? Bring the people of the land here. If there's any Palestinians watching and you want to come on the show, uh, join us. We're, we will have some more Palestinian voices uh, later in the week. But if there's anyone watching now and you want to share, uh, message me on Discord. And you can um, – uh, do I even want to drop the Discord in chat right now? I think no. 
Anyone who is listening can follow it. I don't think you should drop it right now with all the Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, find a way to message me. Um, it's in the description. You'll find my contact information, and, and I'll, uh, I'll get you on here. Um, any other questions? Oh, we have someone from Finland this year. So we've, uh... Yeah, let's do this. Uh, drop, drop where in the world you're watching from. Drop your country. Let's see. Let's see who's here. You could do a, a flag or the country. I hope I can recognize the flags. I'm looking for more questions. Um, I'm seeing somebody's going shift Jadah car ramming. Tal, did you hear about that? Yeah, that was uh, recently. There was, uh, from what I understood, there was a uh, car ramming into a, a group of police officers. Uh, two critically injured, uh, seven injured, uh, just moderately injured. I didn't see any um, updates on that since then. Okay. Probably and, uh, and there has been um, a bridge just collapsed, collapsed in Jerusalem. This isn't connected to the conflict, but uh, did, did you hear about this? No, this probably happened. Bridge. It just happened. Collapse of bleacher leads to dozens of casualties in West Bank settlement of Divadziv. Okay, not sure. Oh, wow. At least eight in serious critical condition. Local leader says warned about holding events at makeshift venue. Police oh, is this about the, um, the ultra-Orthodox uh, community that just had this collapse? No, but it, this was in, in Halmaron. No, this is something else. No, no, I'm, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that just happened with 60 uh, people injured and 10 critically injured. Yeah, it collapsed. The... And you know what's sick? That, you know, like we saw this with Hal uh, Miron recently, that people cheer when civilians die. Um, it's well, it goes back to the generalizations of, you know, if you're in Israel, then if you're not Arab, then you have to be an Israeli. And if you're Israeli, you have to have these set of ideals. And right. These set of ideals, then you deserve to die. If you're Palestinian and you, then you have these set of ideals, it's, it goes either way. That that's where it really comes from is these vast generalizations and deep demonizations that we have on each side. Of right. the great world. And it leads to a lot of horrific things. Yeah. Most of our Conflicts between people can often come down to not attributing the actions of a few to the whole, right? It's such a simple yet profound concept that can really, it, it kills group hate. It helps kill prejudice. The actions of a few or the actions of the government do not speak for the whole. Um, and and yeah, just real, real quick and even more so. This is a little bit trickier, but we often attribute support to a government. So, for example, we, we, we attribute our enemy's support to their government the reasons that we dislike that government. So what's an example? When, when we see that Palestinians voted Hamas into power in 2007, right? 2007 it was? 2008? 2007. Um, most Israelis view that and say, you see, they voted for Hamas because they want to kill us. That's a sign that Palestinians want to kill us. When they see us continuously voting for Bibi, they see that as a sign that most Israelis hate Palestinians because they've heard of Bibi's inflammatory rhetoric. Generally speaking, what we dislike in a leader is not why they're voting for that leader. Let me give most people something even more relatable. Most people thought, not most, but many on the left said, if you vote for Trump, you must be a racist because Trump's a racist, right? This was a common narrative. But Trump supporters generally were not voting 
for reasons of racism, other aspects of Trump appeal to them. So we need to, we need to understand that just because somebody votes for a government that you disagree with, or even if the government is horrible um, and, and dislikes your group, that doesn't mean the people voting for them dislikes your group. I, I know it's, it's, it's hard to see it that way, but it's very much true in Gaza. Is it possible that some of the people who voted for Hamas did so because they hate Israel? Sure. But if you really you know, look at the reasons, a lot of it came down to economic benefits that Hamas uh, uh, offered, right? So they're, they're, Gazans are trying to live a good life. They're like, okay, Hamas, it's either Hamas or uh, the, the PA, right? Who are we, we going to go with? Hamas was giving them a better deal. It didn't have much to do with Israel. We need to acknowledge that. Um, you had a question, Tom? Yeah, that was a question I thought was good. Um, I'm going to go to Bye. His name was... Looking for it's just a lot. Um, Alaram goes at the time of Har Miron. Most Arabs who cheered are actually from outside of Israel. Possibly. Yeah, I did notice that. It seemed to be very popular amongst people on the outside, for sure. Well, again, especially, I mean, at the end of the day, there's more... Um, Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews who, you know, when they're living here, they have more, at least more interaction and they understand a little bit more the nuance that we're not a collective hive mind, but outside of the country, that is how they view everyone. Wouldn't you agree? It seems like Israel though is kind of, I see, I do see a different standard that's held for Israelis in regards to that. So the amount that Israelis are, are accused or asked about Palestine is not the same that your average Chinese person asked about the, the Uyghurs or let's say an American would be asked about Iraq during the Iraq invasion. Um, it's, it seems to be done to Israelis at a level that's not done to other populations. I think there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I know that, one of the first things that would come up from someone who's more right wing would just be anti-Semitism. And I think it's a little bit more complex than that. I think a part of it is anti-Semitism, but I don't think that's the main reason. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Holocaust is a story that most people know. And so that automatically becomes connected with the Jewish state. And so if you know about the Holocaust, you're most likely going to go and know about the state of Israel. Um, because the Holocaust was a part of World War II and everyone war- learns about World War II. You also have the fact that um, Israel has a lot of influence in the Middle East, and so they're going to have a lot of influence in terms of foreign policies with the United States and other Western governments. I mean, which other country has a stand, like America has a Israeli Day Parade? I, I don't remember when China or South Africa has a South African Day Parade in America. As in, it's different in terms of what people see us a lot more in their day-to-day lives than they do other countries. I'm talking about just regular day-to-day. There's more, most likely they're going to hear all stuff happening in Israel. Um, you than think, they are you, so you think it's that we're just constantly at the center of attention. I think so we're also interesting because think about it. It's unlike a lot of war zones. I mean, there are a lot of war zones going on right now around the world. But you can't have the type of media coverage that a lot of these war zones provide, um, can provide. Um, you have this weird interaction between Western and Middle Eastern cultures uh, clashing. And so people are really interested in that. Um, you have 
the connection with um, different people outside of Israel. So you have Jews, for example, they get bunched in with Israel and that every single Jew now has a connection to Israel. And so they're going to become responsible for it. So then you have a lot of Jews outside of the country who have to deal with it, either in a pro-light or an anti-light. Um, and so we end up becoming the core of the conflict. It's also interesting at the end of the day, uh, it's what sells on, on the news and people want to hear about it. There's a lot of conflicts going on right now around the world, but you don't see the type of attention. It doesn't mean that our conflict isn't important to the people who are here and the innocent lives that are being lost right now. But the fact that you have random celebrities around the world talking about the conflict in Israel and Palestine, if they don't mention anything going on in Yemen, they don't mention anything going on with Azerbaijan and Armenia. They don't mention what's going on really with the Uyghur Muslims, Uyghur Muslims. They don't mention what's going on in Ukraine. They don't mention what's going on in the different um, civil wars going on in the um, continent of Africa and the different like the Congos. They don't mention the dictatorship going on in Ethiopia on the population. They're not talking about the Afu in Sudan. That's the thing. There's a lot of different conflicts going on right now in the world. But people aren't focused on that because all they see is Israel. So then they think that everything is related to Israel because we are always at the center of attention in terms of what's going on here. Yeah, interesting. I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I do think it's, there's some amount of anti-Semitism that plays into it. I think it is an oversimplification to just attribute it to that. It's interesting to notice. I think there's something else slightly at play, which is connected to what you said, but the Palestinian struggle is very much a part of left, left-wing left social justice movements, right? It, it's like very much a part of the narrative. It's Black Lives Matter, Free Palestine. These are framed as interconnected, which is at, which is great job on the parts of activists, uh, Palestinian activists, to to create that, right? They, that's a success in their part. So most of the time where, at least in my experience, when people are going to attribute an Israeli individual to the government, at least in the United States, right, that there's people all over the world that, you know, call us murderers because of, you know, what they, how they feel about our government. But in, in the United States, at least, I'll, I'll share a story. I, a few years ago, when there was the Standing Rock protests to stop the, the pipelines in North Dakota, People in Tel Aviv, a bunch of hippie-like people, their group is called Singing in Babylon. I can assure you none of them voted for Bibi, right? They did a single cir- singing circle in support for, for Standing Rock. I thought that was beautiful. I filmed it. I uploaded it to a Standing Rock group on Facebook. And the amount of people that said, like, yeah, but what about the Palestinians? I just made it about a, a Palestine issue really got me thinking, you know, about how they, they see things. And, and I engaged with them. I said, why do you attribute the actions of the government to these people who are just trying to show their support for people in Standard Rock? And most people honestly understood it. And eventually even the admin stepped in and said something. So the, the idea of not attributing um, a government to the people is, makes a lot of sense. And people seem to co- comprehend that point. I think it's just an idea that's not spread quite enough yet because we see the amount of collective blame that exists. Um, I even think like this is something on a, on a biological level. I want to get an evolutionary biologist on the show. If anybody has a good evolutionary biologist, let me know. I'm going to, I want to get Brett, Brett Weinstein on here. That'd be cool. But 
there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, very innate human behaviors that I think really play into a lot of the conflict. Like I I don't solving the conflict is not as simple as as governments uh, having a peace agreement between them. That's part of it. But no, there, there's there's something on a on a human nature level, something that requires transcendence of the individual that needs to be addressed if we truly want to. Uh, live in a in a more peaceful world. One way to get a better understanding of what that is is to really speak to evolutionary biologists and psychologists and sociologists. But then they can help us identify the problem. We then need people who uh, could help with transcendence. So that could be there's many ways to transcend. It could be having a good um, course on emotional intelligence all through school. That should be K through 12 mandatory. Emotional intelligence and interpersonal growth. There's uh, mindfulness practices, yoga, meditation, breathing, right? There's um, there's use of psychedelic plants can have a t- tremendous impact. So to those who are to the peacemakers of this world, we do need to look at political solutions between governments, but we cannot forget the, the personal growth each individual needs to go through as well. Um. Any questions you see? Are you looking at news? I'm looking at news right now. Seeing if anything's going on. Just seems most of the chat is cursing each other out. (laughs) That's normally how it. uh, It's usually the chat is very different. Although you know, I will tell you, throughout the, the little over a year we've been doing these live streams. The chat has gotten better. I think the, the culture that we're creating here is, is having an impact. But on a chat like this, when there's a lot of new, new people, you know, they're bringing in the ways of the old, the old world, you know. So yeah. Sulha is all about the, the, the world of the new. I know I'm speaking uh, in, in very poetic terms today. I don't know why I'm not. I'm a... Uh, I'm really connecting to my my emotional poetic side. I think also right now it's pretty, uh, you know, tensions are high, emotions are running high as well. And so people are very upset and no one, a lot of people don't really want to start discussing, you know, talking mediation and peace right now. So it it makes Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. I, I attributed my emotional speak to not feeling emotional, but more being weighed down by Shavuot dinner. And, um, just, you know, my, my brain function is, uh, you know, moderate level right now. So the poetry is a little easier than a higher level intellectualism. Oh, actually, I don't want to be offensive. That might not be true. Poetry is one of the most brilliant forms of art. So I take that back. Um, um, Barack asked a question. Barack, thank you. How fast would the conflict be solved? If tomorrow everyone wakes up and forgets about religion. Tal, you want to have the first thought that I'm going to grab myself a drink real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, let's, let's just take um, your question and put it as reality and tomorrow religion. So the significance and importance of the old city of Jerusalem in terms of its religious co- connection to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam disappears. So does all the religious connotations with the different areas. However, the connection to land doesn't. And so you have to realize that 
if you said that religion had been forgotten a hundred years ago, then I could say that we wouldn't have the, con um, the conflict that we have today because a lot of what brought people back here was the religious and spiritual connections to this place. You know, so why people see this place as so important. However, today, a big part of this conflict now is simply people who live here and that this is their home and this is where they grew up and people are fighting for their right to live here or to return back where their ancestors used to live a uh, hundred years ago or, or more. And so even if religion tomorrow were to just completely disappear, you would still have different conflicts. Just the focus would not be on the religious side anymore. It would be focused on other things. And also to respond to, this is a common thing I see, which I think is important to understand. Connection to the land isn't just DNA. That's something I think that you have to, if you, I really do recommend it. If you haven't read um, the Islamic text, um, the Bible of the Christians, and also the Torah of the Jews, you'd understand the more connection of why Jews felt the need to want to come back here. I'm not talking about what happened when they came back here, or was it justified, wasn't it justified, but why Jews felt the connection to come back here. It comes from, it's a deep part of the of Judaism return to Zion to come back to where um, Judaism was founded, where, where it became its stronghood, where the Judea and Israel used to kingdoms used to be. And so that's where, um, that's why we want to come back. Ever since our diaspora, we've constantly talked about returning to Zion. At Pesach Seder, a, um, a holiday where we celebrate um, breaking our chains from our enslavement in Egypt, as the story goes in, in Torah, we say at the end of the Seder, it's around a few hours, we say, Shana next year in Jerusalem. And this has happened for hundreds of years. Every single year we say this. And that's the connection of Jews to this land. And I don't think that disregarding the Jewish connection to this land or the Arabs who lived here, their connection to this land helps anyone. The other side is not going to listen to you if they if you destroy their own connection to this land. Thank you, Tal. I didn't hear the beginning of your religion response. But in terms of if religion were to disappear on the land, would we be closer to solving the conflict? I would say that depends on what replaces our religion. It seems like most humans grasp onto some set of beliefs and often in a quite dogmatic fashion, right? So you could be an atheist, but believe very staunchly in your political opinion and believe it almost similar to how people believe in gods. So, Getting rid of religion doesn't help if it's replaced with an ideology that is also used to justify our conflict, right? So everybody from the river to the sea can become an atheist tomorrow, but let's say Palestinians would cling stronger to strong sense of Palestinian nationalism while Israelis would um, stick, uh, gain a stronger sense of Israeli nationalism, then we probably wouldn't be better off. If what would replace the religion would be a humanist view that views all people of equal worth and the, the highest value is, you know, preserving human life and elevating well-being, well, then, yeah, yeah, we'd be better off, I can pretty confidently say. So I guess it depends. In terms of a Jewish connection, I, I have, I, I do see it often, and I wish people would stop this. This is something both 
the pro-Israel and pro-Palestine camp do. They try to deny people's connection to the land. Uh, you have, about this yesterday of that about my dislike of let's go back and see who was who was here first, and we can just keep going back and back and back and back. Exactly. By the way, is my audio okay? Because my mic is like flashing. Can you hear me well? Yeah, I can hear. Okay. Well, Chad, if you're hearing audio, something with the audio, let me know. But um, we often hear people say Jews are Europeans, they're Khazars, they don't come from the land. We then hear others say Arabs are from Arabia, they're not from the land. What Toss said is entirely true. It's not all about DNA, and probably DNA is the least important part of it. Our connection to the land often comes from stories, from culture, um, from, from our peoplehood. But if we do want to talk about genetics, right, the genetics do point us to the land, both Jews and Palestinians. The, the majority or at least half of, of both Jewish and Palestinian DNA is Levantine from this land for many thousands of years. It's mixed, though. Ashkenazi Jews have around 50% European. We, you know, we spent a few thousand years in Europe. That makes sense. Um, Palestinian DNA is mixed with Arab DNA. That would make sense, too. Arabs, you know, conquered this land. Um, so, so if we want to look at DNA, it's just, it's just a false claim on both sides. But that's besides the point. Because connection to the land, as Paul said, does not come from DNA. And to deny someone's connection to the land is simply strengthening calls for denial of your own side, right? Our, our activism feeds into each other. Those who say Palestinians don't have connection to the land strengthen those who say Israelis have no connection to the land. You are partners in your activism. You're not making the conflict better. You're not bringing people together. You're aiding in the radicalization of our people. So, you know, keep that in mind before sharing. Let's see, in terms of questions, we're, okay, we're only an hour and 20, and we got more time. By the way, we just hit 6,000 subscribers. Congratulations. I wish we had a little um, confetti effect. How do we get a confetti effect up, up in here? YouTube six six thousand. Uh, we're we're just over a year in, and you know, on to sixty thousand. On, I would have uh, I would have made made a special graphic for this, but um, hold on. Yeah, we got this. Okay, you all ready? Are you all ready? I can't hear you. Are you ready? Are you ready? My coach not copyright. Oh, did I just get this demonetized? <laughs> not copyright, so it's fine. Oh, did it say not copyright? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um, let's see, pork chop. So thank you. You know, I, I do appreciate your question after, uh, Tal and I sharing feedback about connection to the land, because this, 
this question does seem in good faith. So I appreciate you uh, hearing our feedback and continuing to engage. What about secular Jews? Do they have a connection to the land? So that really depends. Many um, diaspora Jews, like many American Jews, wouldn't don't have much of a connection or any connection to Israel. Uh, there's also a growing amount of anti-Zionist Jews, the vast majority of whom are secular. There are the Naturi Karta who are anti-Zionist. They're anti-Israel, but I think that they do they do have a connection to the land. They just believe that Zionism is like a secular project and against what God wants, and we can only return it's, to the land when the Messiah the main comes. The gist of it is that we'll come back to the land when God gives us the land. Right. So they, is, they, and even it's interesting though because. The Notori Karta, I always see them with a lot of very pro-Palestinians, and it's weird because their beliefs don't match up with pro-Palestinians because in their eyes, once God comes, they're getting the land, and it's going to become a theocracy, a Jewish theocracy. It's not going to become a secular Palestinian state under their in their eyes. They just don't want it to currently be in the name of Israel, in the name of Judaism, being a semi-secular state. They want God to give us the state in their eyes. Right, exactly. Now, when it comes to secular Jews living in Israel, most of them, and also many secular Jews abroad, most of them do have a strong connection to the land. Again, it's part of our culture, our stories, our, our collective history. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very secular, and I, I myself have a connection to the land. Right? I would say my connection to the land is not quite not quite as many religious people or the way settlers feel about the land. I, I wouldn't say it's quite the same, but not, you know, it's, Israel's great, you know, like I, I think Israel's a great country. I think this land is special. Do I think that it, that it's ours because God gave it to us? No. Do I think it's ours be, because um, we were here 2000 years ago? No. I, I don't really view things in terms of history or religion. I don't give, I give that very little weight when reaching my conclusion. Um, you know, I just think that when looking for peace, peaceful resolutions, we, we need to um, try to take paths with less resistance. And, uh, and the entire concept of dismantling Israel just doesn't make any sense, right? Like Israel exists. We're a successful country. Um, we're a safe haven for Jews all around the world. We are, in many ways, it's a beautiful story of, of uh, recreating a civilization after it was destroyed 2,000 years ago, right? There, there's something beautiful here. The, any claim against Israel's human rights abuses, any mistakes we've made in the past, which are valid, right? We are very valid. There's a lot of critique um, that, we can, that can be made towards Israel. Zionism has been horrible towards the Palestinians, right? There's no denying this. But that doesn't mean that Israel doesn't have any more right to exist or that Israelis shouldn't love their country. Because there are so many other reasons why, you know, we do love our country. It's not as simple as just Israel did this, therefore it has no right to exist. Countries that exist should remain to exist. Unless the people of that nation decide that they want to change it and make it cease to exist. Um, and I, to be honest, I really think when we have the conversation here, I think it's grounded in reality. I think when we get in conversations based on like history and religion, 
you know, we, we say, oh, but it's our history. And someone else will be like, yeah, but we also have a history. Someone will say it's my religion, but someone has a different interpretation of, of religion. Let, let's just be honest about the facts. Israel exists. It's remaining to exist. Palestinians live here. They have a right to self-determination as well. They're not going anywhere. History doesn't matter. Uh, how much Arabian blood they have doesn't matter. How much European blood we have doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. We're here to stay. They're here to stay. There's one path. There's one path forward that we should approach, and that's a peaceful path, path forward. Um, all this conversation about history and religion, in my opinion, is, is a distraction. Um, okay, I see some more questions. But by the way, you know, we did just hit six K subscribers, but. I, I view the analytics and only around 50% of people who view the content subscribe. So everyone watching this, hit that subscribe button, smash it. Let's, let's see, let's see our subscriber count jump to 50 real quick. Come on. You got it. And just, just one button, just one button. You could help. Um, pork chop says it does matter. It's the entire basis for why you're there in the first place. Well, let's, let's, I agree with you that had we not had a historic claim, not, not a religious claim, but the ones who the, you know, the early Zionists were secular. It wasn't a religious claim. They had a historic claim, a claim for our own security and protection, right? That, that was really the, the basis of the Zionist movement. It's true that a historic claim strengthened that. But that historic claim is is grounded in reality, right? The you know DNA, which again we do have Levantine Ashkenazis do have Levantine DNA. That's not that doesn't that's still irrelevant because there's a historic claim. But that was relevant then. The historic claim is no longer relevant, right? Why was it relevant then? Because if Jews had no connection whatsoever to the land, none, we just thought it was a cool piece of land and said, hey, let's let's go live there then, yeah, we would probably have less global support. That's true. That's true. But let's just say tomorrow we said, oh, you know what? We were wrong. None of our DNA is Levantine. The connection's all made up. That, that doesn't mean anything about Israel's right to exist. Again, sovereign nations do not get dismantled because of anything you could point to in the past. It's just not a workable model for, for, for solving conflicts. The, the amount of the amount of pain and destruction you need to cause in dismantling a sovereign nation is so much more than what needs to be caused in order to solve a conflict. So, so again, it doesn't really change much. Um, do you see any questions tall worth uh, taking? No, I'm currently looking. I saw a few. I think a lot of the times these are questions also that we're going to probably get every single live stream because there's always new people and it's always going back on, on the history of the conflict, which is why yeah. I agree it's more important also to just focus on now and where we go from here because we can't change what happened in the, in the past. At the end of the day, the... Palestinians are here, the Israelis are here, the Jews are here, the Arabs are here. And how do we go forward with the least amount of casualties and people harmed? Because too many a people, even one person is too many. And I mean, you could go. I mean, if you want to go the route of 
we want total domination here, then fine. That that's a that's a pathway of violence and a war and bloodshed. And if you want to openly say that you're for that, fine. But I won't stand next to you and I won't be fighting with you. And I don't think a lot of people would be fighting with you because war is horrific and I it pains me every time I see Israel with the Palestinians and another war and we have to go through another conflict and more people are going to lose loved ones and it also sets its back. I mean, there are probably many more Israelis and Palestinians who were just about to, you know, sit down with someone on the other side and have a discussion with them. And after this conflict, this recent one, they're not going to want to talk to the other side and they're going to fear them again and they're going to hate them again. And a lot of it's just going to be justified and it's really hard to move forward when these things happen. Um, it's really hard right. to reach the good side when a lot of bad stuff happens sometimes. Um, I see somebody asking another chat member if they're Jewish, saying they don't look Jewish. Listen, this is this is pretty common to see this. There are many different types of Jewish look, or perhaps you could say there is no Jewish look. Although I, I agree with the, the former statement. You know, there is some kind of an Ashkenazi look, but some Ashkenazis don't have that look. Some are very dark skinned. Some are blonde hair, blue eyed. Right. Um, You have you have black Jews. You have Indian Jews. You have some type Chinese Jews um, all over Europe, South American, United States, Canada. Like most countries in the world have some Jewish population that have a slightly different background, a slightly different history and a slightly different look. So there isn't a Jewish look. Um, so it's a little offensive to tell somebody they don't look Jewish. Yeah, um, also it's, everything. it's also when people talk about Palestinians and they're like, oh, you're not a real Palestinian or stuff like that in terms of, you don't need to look a certain way unless uh, it's a very specific, like, you know, if you, me, for example, I'm white. And so someone's saying you look white, then it makes sense in terms of your skin color, but identity and who you are. I mean, you can't tell me what a Christian looks like, what a Muslim looks like, what a Jew looks like, um, what a nationality looks like. And so you shouldn't make the assumptions. It can also be very offensive and very harmful. And it can also play into Islamophobic, anti-Semitic sentiments, and it doesn't lead to anything good. Um, Ram asks, what do you think about soldiers who do not want to serve and refuse to? Uh, I'm a bit conflicted about this. I, you know, I'm leaning towards that the military should be voluntary. Uh, you know, uh, there are benefits to it being mandatory, but I, it's not for everybody. We can't expect everybody to want to do it or at the very least make it easy enough to get out of it. If you don't want to like maybe not entirely make it voluntary, but that you need to do either military or some kind of a a national service, like community, community work, um, volunteering somewhere. I I think it's, it's a good aspect of, of growth. You know, often in the United States, they're very good at pressuring people. It's, uh, you know, you're in, in, in middle. Adar, I think left us. 
Am I the only one you can hear? Wait, yeah, we have some connection issues. What's the thing you heard? Tyler, are you with me? You, I can't understand you at all. Yeah, no. Okay. It looks like my connection's back now. What happened? No, you're fine now. You're back with us. Um, is that on your end or my end? I don't know. It looked like other people also. Uh, I hear you like a robot now. Me? Yeah. You- Am I with everyone alone right now? Here, I'm back. I think you left me. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah, I had some connection issues. You. Uh, I pay. I pay. I, oh, you too? Maybe it was like a an Israel-wide thing. Anyways... Yeah, so I don't know what the last thing you heard is, but in the United States, it's they really push you to college at a young age. They tell you middle school is important, so you could because it prepares you for high school. And high school is important because it determines your college, and college is important because that'll determine your job. Right? It's kind of like pushed in our brain from a very young age. Truth is, most eighteen-year-olds don't know what they want to do with their life. They don't, um, and. And also just the pressure for college in general. I think way more people need to go to vocational schools, um, like in countries like, like Germany. So like the, the college culture in the U.S. is way off. Uh, how did I get here? Oh, yeah. So the concept in Israel is very different because most people go to military or do some national service. After national service, they'll work a little bit to save up money. They save up money, they'll travel, they'll take a trip to South America, uh, sometimes Thailand, India, and go there for like six months they get back, they're like 23, 24 already, and then they start thinking about university. That's how it's done here, and you have way more life experience, and you're way more equipped to, to decide what you want to do with your life. And also college here is in tens of thousands of dollars a, a year. What a scam going on in the U.S., stealing from the young minds, making them indebted to, to the banks for their whole lives instead of using those resources um, in the economy. Come on. Come on, don't get me started on that. Anyways, um, uh, Raja, I saw you say ask my question, but I can't find it, so ask it again, please. And, you know, when I said it, can everyone please subscribe? You know how many people subscribe from that? Seven. Y'all, y'all are I mean, it's more, than, it's more than six. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's less than 50, which was I wanted. I wanted a, I wanted a boost. I want a nice boost. Um, that's fine. I see. I see. You don't want to subscribe. All good. Red Wine is saying, can you guys take Sarah Silverman to Israel? I mean, she wants to come, sure. We, we love her. Come on. Come on over, Sarah. Um, uh, Satya Ghosh, Israel, the people chosen by God. Let, let's, let's stop with that stuff. Like that's not, that's not helpful. I appreciate the support, but like we, we don't, we don't need that. Um, here, uh, Rajin asked her a uh, question. Uh, one, one or two states. Yeah, that's a, that's a hefty. Um, I think looking for one or two state solution is, already not really viable because the two state solution, then you're essentially saying that half then either side would only get half of what they want. 
because Palestinians want the region that was called Palestine completely to them to have a state, which is the entirety of what Israel is today. And Israelis want the entire area to be under their control under Jewish sovereignty as the Jewish state. Um, so I don't think any of the two options are really viable for a lot of different reasons. Um, so I, when I was thinking about this in terms of, okay, so what's the solution? What, what's my idea? It, it goes back to what I'm talking about. It's first trying to minimize uh, hostility between both of us. Because let's just say, even if we right now um, removed every single Jew, um, specifically Jews living in the middle, uh, in the West Bank, re removed all of them, and now Palestinians could build up a state in the West Bank, there's still going to be a lot of hostility 70 years of hostility buildup there are going to just continue between Israel and uh, the newly established Palestinian state. Something important to realize with Israel is one of the reasons that it was established was to be a place to protect the Jewish people. And if anything happens in the world that the Jewish state will protect the Jewish people, that that's one of the main slogans and ideas of Israel. We saw this when we had the kidnapping where they kidnap a, um, plane full of uh, passengers brought it to Uganda, and then they let all the non-Israel, non-Jewish people off, and they kept the Jews as hostages, and no one was doing anything to actually help. And so Israel sent special forces to Uganda to save the to save them, which they were able to do. And that's just like one example, but it's also saving Jews from different lands and stuff like that. This is how I would put it: the only time that Israelis, Jewish Israelis are in a larger sense of Israel is going to be willing to do anything in terms of compromising land or compromising um, political power is when the Jewish people here can be ensured of their own safety. When the Jewish people here can be ensured that they'd be safe under a Palestinian state or a secular state in this land that's when they would be willing to have these different types of negotiations. That's the way I see it. This might be wrong and other people would disagree with me. That's how I see it. And so with Palestinians, it's about understanding where they're coming from and what they want and building up these connections between us. Because right now, every time, justified or not, every time Hamas fires a rocket into Israel, You've added another year to Israelis never trusting the Palestinians because they also lump all the Palestinians in together. That if that Hamas, the Islamic Jihad, um, Hezbollah, which is also uh, supporting of the uh, Palestinians, the PLO, every single Palestinian faction, all the Palestinian people, when one person does a violent act against Israel, um, justified or not, it doesn't matter if it's justified in their eyes. The way Israel sees it is that once a violent act is taken against it, it's further justification that we need to uh, be in control because the second we lose control, we're all going to be killed. And so unless that fear can be overcome, there is going to be no negotiations of peace. And so how do you do that? Because I know a good question that's going to have is, well, what about the Palestinians? How are they supposed to fight against um, the aggressions of Israel against the people of Palestinians, because, you know, they they say that, you know, diplomatic approaches haven't worked. And so we have to resort to violence. If you want to resort to violence, understand that in terms of the way Israel's viewing it, 
it's not getting you any farther. It's only actually justifying the farther right Israel to go against the Palestinian cause and delegitimize the Palestinian movement. And what I think is exactly stuff like this, is that having programs where you have Palestinians and Israelis together criticizing the Israeli government for actions it takes and criticizing the PLO and Hamas and Hezbollah and other leadership positions together, that's how they overcome this. Because that way, what, what are you going to say to a pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian who are both um, criticizing but not doing any attacks? How are you scared of me if I'm just criticizing the government? And you look way more stupid as time goes on. And so it's not that violence isn't justified if you feel that giants is justified. It doesn't get you anywhere. And it only makes the Israeli right who use this as a tool to say, look, look what they're doing. We have to be scared of them. We can never give them any types of uh, further political freedoms in terms of making their own state because look what's going to happen if they make a state. We need to dis, we need to destroy this statement by building relations between Israelis and Palestinians, by between Jews and Arabs, because by building these relations, by talking with one another, eventually this can collapse governments in the future in terms of the, the political makeup of those governments. That's it. That's my cool. agenda. Thanks, Tal. Um, uh, I guess we'll touch on this briefly. As a Muslim, I'm genuinely confused, confused with the Judaism as both a race, both a race and also a religion. Is there proof that all Jewish people come from a single genetic source? So, it's said that Judaism is considered an ethno-religion. So it's a religion that's connected to an ethnic group. And uh, there's, there's another ethno-religion that also lives in Israel, the, the Druze population. That's D-R-U-Z-E. Um, do we all come from a single genetic group? Not every single one of us, but yes, the majority, the majority of Jews, it seems, do come from a same genetic group. Uh, leading back to the Levant thousands of years ago. Um, but it's not as simple as just calling it an ethno-religion because you could have converts, right? So if somebody converts, they become the religion, but not the ethnicity, and they're still very much Jewish. So th that should be seen as kind of like entering a peoplehood, right? You become part of the Jewish people if you convert. Um it's not these concepts aren't aren't so intuitive because it's quite different from, you know, how we generally talk about religions and ethnicities. We need to understand that race, ethnicity uh, and the religions we believe are, are really very much social constructs. So there's variations uh, and spectrums of of these different con concepts. Um, I think it's it's a better way to try to understand it. It doesn't work within the, the framework that we're we're generally used to understanding uh, these concepts. Um, to roast, yeah, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. Uh, sorry, actually, I, I got you. Surorusu, what's up? Is there any value in drawing parallels between Israel, Palestine, to other places in history to say, hey, if they reach peace, we will get there? Yeah, I, I think there is, and I uh, actually often do that because many Israelis and Palestinians, many meaning the vast majority, right, something like 70, 
a poll from a few years ago showed something like 73% of Israelis and 91% of Palestinians don't think we'll have peace in the next 100 years, which is crazy to think about. When you have a population that doesn't have hope and is in despair, that's a population that's less likely to mobilize themselves for change. Uh, despair breeds fear, hate, radicalization. So, uh, yeah, we need people to have hope. And one of the ways to give people hope is to show them um, other groups of people who have fought for generations and, and eventually made peace. I do think it is effective to give people hope. Um, um, Zach asked a question earlier. Oh, yeah, Zach, I saw that you asked. I can't find it. Zach asks. 1014. Uh, Samantha, the Jews are. Oh, no, sorry. It's, it's higher up. Um, Whatever, I remember. Oh, yeah, here I found it. Zach asks, what are your thoughts on the pro-Palestine protests in the UK? Do you think deliberately choosing to drive through the most Jewish neighborhood of London is anti-Semitic incitement? Tal, you want to have a go at this or shall I? Um, let me just, can you put it up again? Just, uh... Yeah, sure. Okay, so this is a few things. There is an anti-Semitic element from it but it depends on where it's coming from there are i think it comes from a few different things it can be from the community but in general because um people associate jews as i said earlier israelis all israelis are a collective that means we all we are all the government that's when people are saying to me why are you killing children i'm sitting studying for my finals i don't know what you're talking about so in terms of how we generalize people so this goes further and goes to Jews because Jewish state, that means Jews are connected to Jewish state and therefore Jews, Jewish state, whatever Israel does, Jews did. And so then they go and attack Jews because they have this assumption that because you're Jewish, you have this connection and it's not justified and should be fought against. And it is anti-Semitism that stems from you generalizing all Jews as a hive mind that they all have this um, certain belief system. It's very similar to when I hear people say, well, look at all these different uh, Jewish people who are leaders around the world or they're highly successful. What does that even mean at the end of the day in terms of Jewish control? When you're talking about people controlling a group in general, when this is more going into the conspiracies of anti-Zionism, anti, sorry, anti-Semitism, is that I was asking a friend of mine who asked me this. I was talking to a person who... Uh, had more right-leaning views. He wasn't Jewish. He had more. And so he was asking me, what about this all about the, the Jews that control the world? Jews don't control anything. I don't control anything. I wish I did. It'd be awesome if I could control a lot of things that are going on in the world, you know, space lasers and that. But I don't. Neither does Jews anywhere. When you're talking about leaders, a leader is a leader. For example, um, Trump um, I think he's Christian, if I'm correct, in terms of that's just his background. So, yeah, he, I mean, he, he's not devout by any means, no. but yeah, he claims. But, just say, but yeah, exactly. So, just because. One sec. <laughs> um, just because of uh, Trump being a Christian doesn't mean that Christians control the United States. That's not how things work. It's not a collective hive mind. Um, same thing with any leader. And so I think that this all builds into how we generalize people and we, we turn them into this monolith because it's way easier to attack. 
it's much easier to attack Jews and Israel if I just think of anyone who's a Jew and anyone who's Israeli as one entity, because it's easier to attack one entity. But when you're actually focused on one individual and something like, oh, I have this belief, I, I mean, both um, Adar and I are both Jewish, we're both Israeli, and we don't agree on the same things. But when people say Israelis, they then come with this assumption that both Adar and I have the exact same belief systems and follow the exact same actions, which isn't true. And so I would say that it's anti-Semitism that stems from generalizations that we have from individuals. I'm going to frame it slightly differently. Different opinions. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, I actually, I agree with you. I, I agree, but I, I want to look at it differently. I want to even give those marching the benefit of the doubt. Now, first of all, Rashi has shared that they were walking to the Israeli embassy. Um, what path did they take to the Israeli embassy? Did they per- intentionally do Jewish neighborhoods? I'm not sure, but let's assume that they did. They intentionally went through Jewish neighborhoods. Their logic would be this. And you can see how this is logic that isn't necessarily anti-Semitic, but rooted in, in data. They'd, they could see that Jews in London, I'm throwing out a number, 85% of Jews in London support Israel. So they know that they're walking and marching through a de- to a demographic that has the highest support of Israel. They can view that as effective activism, essentially. They say, you see, we could th- see through data which populations have the highest support of Israel. Um, let's walk through those neighborhoods to convince those people. That's really giving them the benefit of, of the doubt. Probably a little bit more benefit of the doubt that should be granted. I think, I think there is a case for just group generalizing as well, but let's let's just let's say it's just they're looking for to be effective with who they target. The problem, and here's the real problem: if they're looking for effectiveness, marching through Jewish neighborhoods most likely is not going to convince Jews to support Palestine. It's going to get those Jews to feel unsafe where they live. And it's actually going to strengthen Zionism because one of the foundations of Zionism is Jews feeling like they aren't safe in other countries. So walking through a Jewish neighborhood, while it may be seen as an effective strategy, it's actually strengthening Zionism by increasing fear in the Jews in London. So I would, you know, I would say it's probably not an effective strategy. I don't want to make an assumption about their intentions, whether they're anti-Semitic or not. That being said, we have seen, I don't know if it was the one in London, but there's a pretty problematic photo of like a Jew horns. Let's pull that up. Uh, Do you know what I'm talking about, Tom? Yeah, I think so. And there have been a fair amount of Jews that have been attacked this week uh, in, in the United States and in Europe. Like that, the single best way to strengthen um, Zionism is to indiscriminately attack Jews. Like if, if you want to make the case for Zionism, attack Jews like that. That's the way to do it. Um, not, not to mention, it's just like morally reprehensible to just attack an, another individual um, unless it's in self-defense. Like there's no justification for that whatsoever. Even if that person is a Zionist and supports the government, Israeli government. And even if that person supports 
the bombings of Gaza, even then to just beat somebody up is unjustified. But to indiscriminately do it because they're wearing a, a kippah, you know, that's beyond reprehensible. Um, where is it? Um, did you find the picture? I think somebody put it in the cringe, cringe take repository. By the way, um, a little bit more about content we have coming up this week. Oh, Satala, I was actually going to talk to you about this. We, you know, you're starting that new segment. We spoke about doing it tomorrow. Are you available to do it on Wednesday instead? Uh, yeah. Cool. So it'll be on Wednesday. Um, anyways. Okay. I found it. So tomorrow at 8 PM, 8 30 PM, I'll be going live to do a cringe, a cringe take review. So there's been a lot of cringy uh, tweets and posts on social media. We started compiling them and I'm just going to start reviewing them and making fun of them. It's going to be a fun and lighthearted session. Something to take our minds off of uh, what's happening. It's it's good to it's good to be distracted. So that's what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, Tuesday, I'll be going live for one on one with uh, a Gazan. So we're going to have a Gazan in the show. He's going to talk to us about what's going on in Gaza and share a little bit about his thoughts about the Israel Palestine conflict. And on Wednesday, Tal Hagen is premiering his own show. Tal, what, what do we say it's going to be called? Uh, ooh, what did we actually call it? It was a good yeah. name. A- analyzing media analysis. Uh, you thought of it, so you should, you should remember, you know? <laughs> uh, I think it's on Discord, our conversation. One sec, I'll find out. It is called... Real-time media analysis with Tal Hagen. Awesome. So Tal's going to go live and take you through the process of how he does his research, um, you know, the Twitter accounts he follows, just give a better understanding of, of how to get um, a balanced opinion on what's going on. And it's going to be done in real time, right? There's there's rockets being fired. There's airstrikes being uh carried out every minute. So he's going to show you how we follow this real time. I'm actually very excited for it. Uh, I'm going to do another screen share just to show you all this. Okay. Oh, no, not that. Share. Screen time. Boom. So what, I don't know which rally this was at, but you obviously free Palestine this, and then you see like a Jew caricature, giant nose, claws and a horn. Like how do people not realize that this weakens the Palestinian cause? Like this, this is, this is bad for, for Palestinian activism, right? If you truly care about Palestinian liberation you need to separate it from any form of anti-Semitism. Not only that, you need to outright reject anti-Semitism. That is the single, like one of the single best ways to strengthen your activism. Disassociate yourself with all the hate. Make your movement about liberation, about love, not about hating another group of people. 
Cool. Just in terms, I think uh, I don't have a YouTube channel yet. It's right now. This is more going to be um, a test run to see whether people enjoy the type of commentary I do on this type of stuff. My main um, activist work is more media analysis. If you follow my Twitter, it's the same name as my name here, Tal Hagen. My main focus is on condemning different sites for um, reposting fake news articles, reposting fake photos, videos, or saying things that are strictly or simply not true. I go after pro-Palestinian content, go after pro-Israel content. I don't really care what your agenda is. Um, I care that you're factually reporting um, evidence and that you're not just pushing an agenda um, without factual information. So you can follow that on Tal Hagen on Twitter. Uh, I'm For now, I'm going to just be doing this in regard to Sulha later. Oh, it's all in English. There are some comments. It's all going to, the channel, my show is going to be in English because I also want to be able to come to a wider audience. Also, a lot of Arabs don't know um, Hebrew, but they do know English. So it's, it's, I'm trying to be able to be able to speak to everyone. I, I sadly don't know Arabic, so I have to deal with what I have. Um, and on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing more the introduction, the trial. If people don't like it, then I won't continue it. If people do, then we'll talk with the Dar and see what we can do in terms of setting up my own channel or something like that. Uh, in terms, I saw there was something someone said in the chat that I thought was interesting. I'm trying to find it. Hmm. Someone, I think someone said like, uh, so what's the point? Like, what are we trying to say here? Because I guess they joined late. Uh, it's essentially the channel is meant to bring together different ideas in regard to the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And instead of you just listening to a commentary channel where someone's giving you their opinions, you can actually come onto the Discord or even come onto the talks right now and discuss your opinions and actually have your opinions challenged by pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian individuals in a fair and respectful manner um, on the platform. And so everyone has a, a right to speak as long as they're not, you know, openly saying, I hope you die or cursing them out, then any opinion is welcome. Cool. Um, we're closing in on two hours, so we will start winding down. Any last questions from the chat? Now is the time to ask it. Now is the time to ask it. Let's see. Um. I mean, I'll address this. Someone goes, Israel kills babies. Honestly, you're right. Israel, you know, in the airstrikes have killed children. That's true. And um, it's horrible. I do want to say that Jewish children have also been killed in Palestinian rocket fire. So I guess my question is, why, don't, why aren't you saying Palestine kills babies? Right. Like if, if you if you want if you want to be honest, be honest, say Israel and Palestine kills babies. But when you only frame it as one side. 
don't expect people to take you so seriously unless they already agree with you. But then you're just speaking to your echo chamber. Um, okay, we have a few more. You know, I wish they would do, uh, you know, super chats. You know how super chats work? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's more of a Twitter, uh, Twitch thing. No, is it? No, they have it on YouTube, just not in Israel. It's where, like, you... You you tip, you pay like a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, and then those comments pop up. And in, for some for some reason, they don't have it in Israel, which is annoying because I'd like to utilize that. Um, oh, um, I just I see someone saying that we need a laugh, so I thought I'd share something that happened yesterday. I don't know who knows, but I thought it was a way, it's a way better way to have a fight warfare instead of you know, dropping missiles or rockets on each other. Uh, yesterday, uh, Hamas, they released the personal phone number of the IDF official spokesperson and told everyone to call them and uh, annoy him. And I thought that was really hilarious, personally. And I thought, you know, I'd rather we, we settle this with pranks and phone calls instead of uh, <laughs> anymore. And I thought that was great. And it that was his personal number. I checked also the phone number. It was. I wasn't going to message him, but it was his Interesting. number. Interesting. How, how do you think they got it? I don't know, but it's hilarious to me. Interesting. Um, Gerfoot asks, Gerfoot asks, after these events, do you see Israeli society being ready to hear about your perspective or Yehuda Hakoans? I think, unfortunately, that this has... A, the ability to actually take us backwards. Uh, it might radicalize our populations a little bit more. I think the, the mob violence we've seen is going to create a deep lack of trust um, for many years to come. So I'm not, I can't say I'm so optimistic. This is going to make Israelis or Palestinians more open to these perspectives. Now, it's possible I'm wrong, and I, I hope I'm wrong. It's possible that people will just get fed up and start looking for something refreshing, something different. But from my experience, these conflicts seem to radicalize most people rather than have the reverse effect. Todd, do you maybe see it differently? In regard to what exactly? I'm just looking at the comments. Oh, um, just if, like, the views that we... The, the balanced perspective, the one, the ones we share here, if people are going to be more open to hearing them after this conflict. So I think to some extent, it's going to take a lot of healing. Uh, you have to realize that every single person who lost a child in this recent conflict, more so the Palestinians right now, uh, Israelis and Palestinians who have been under bombardment, uh, they're now going to have PSD and afraid and neither side is going to want to speak to the other. It does it to them, to the people who lost their homes, to the people who uh, lost people that they care about. They don't care what the politics of this war is. They lost someone close to them. And whoever is the one who fired that uh, missile, or whoever launched that rocket or vice versa, they're responsible. And that's it. And they don't want to speak. There is no justice because my kid is dead. My brother is dead. My family member is dead. My friend is dead. And 
every time these type of conflicts happen, it, it pushes us back a lot in terms of rebuilding uh, relationships. And so I think it's good to do stuff like this, where even in the middle of this conflict, we're trying to push out. And how you say we're going to be bringing on a, a guy from Gaza. I hope that he's okay and that um, he's completely safe and that he'll be able to come on and have a conversation and we get to hear his perspective. And same thing for Israelis under bombardment. I didn't know if during this I could have had a siren. And so I'm happy that I was able to be here and trying to push through because it's not easy. I remember I was in Tel Aviv a few days ago and the siren went off when I was in the middle of the street and I ran and I just, you know, um, ran to the sidewalk and I just put my hands over my head and I remember having this great sense of emotions and it's just like, I just want to fight back hard and I want to take him out. And then after the siren went off, I was thinking to myself, do you realize what you're promoting? You're just promoting this endless, senseless violence again and again. It's not going to help. So what? you take them out and then one in five years, they do it again. And it's emotions run high. And maybe I was able to do that because I actually speak to Palestinian Gazans. And so I know in a sense that you know, I see them also as, and I have a conversation with them. So I, I can try to get out of my own head, but for people who don't, and this goes back to what I said, all they see is they, the people that they lost the trauma that they felt and they don't care what the other side's justifications are. It doesn't mean anything to them. They lost lives and it's going to be very hard to rebuild relations with a lot of Israelis and uh, Palestinians after this recent conflict. And it always is every time something happens in this country, but slowly but surely i do believe and i think it's better to be a little bit naive um and to believe that we can do something because the worst that could happen is you know i live my life hoping and hoping that we could have solved this to some extent and then i pass away and it isn't solved but at least that i live my life believing it could be solved and if it does get solved then awesome as in i'd rather live in an optimistic viewpoint of naivety that maybe this can get solved Corkchop goes, thank you guys for addressing my questions. I've come away with a better understanding of your perspective. Uh, our pleasure, Porkchop. And, you know, I, I love hearing that. That is why we do what we do. So thank you. And I hope you join us again. Thanks for listening, Porkchop. Um, I just saw, I saw this question by Redwine65 a few times. I just wanted to address it because I feel like they really want it answered. Um, in regard to do Israelis have the right to bear arms? So it's very, very strict in Israel. Um, only soldiers who had Efesheva and above 07 um, combat licenses, and they did a certain combat training and above can actually apply for the license. Then you have to go rigorous security protocols. And only if you live in certain areas of the country that are deemed dangerous or stuff like that, then you're allowed to get um, a pistol. I think I don't even think you can actually get an M4 or M16 or stuff like that if you're not um, um, a soldier. But it's very strict in Israel. It's almost impossible to get. You don't see people walking around with private um, firearms. It's usually only military. Um, unless you you live in a dangerous area. Like if you live in a settlement, yeah. then it's, it's pretty easy to get. Yeah. Uh, Bilal Shah says, kind of disappointed that you deleted my question. Seriously, why not address it if you're fair and impartial? Uh, I don't think we deleted your question, Bilal, uh, unless it was a question that was hateful. So, for example, if you said, why did you suck? Then maybe one of the mods deleted it. But if it was a legit question, there's no reason it's going to get deleted. Please, so uh, ask, please ask it again. Ask it again, yeah. Um, 
let's see. Yeah, Mona says, what about the semi-automatics? Yeah, uh, we, we acknowledge that. People who are soldiers who are active or has to do with different security concerns like the M4 or M16 that can have automatic fire. Um, I think those are the types of people that can get those type of weaponry. It has to do with different security concerns in those areas. Um, that's essentially the reasons. It has nothing to do with justifying or not. That Exactly, that's the, the facts on the ground. That's currently what uh, the reasoning. Um. So we had before Tsurusu, uh, who I, I struggled with pronouncing, so they actually explained. Sorry about the name, Adar. It's my Danish first name spelt wrongly in Japanese. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, explained it in Discord a month or two ago. Yeah, I, so I wasn't there for, uh, for the explanation. Um, and then in, he, he continues... Uh, uh, hold on. Um, uh, dude, I don't know the flags. You're sending me flags and I'm going to read them. Is that like Finland and uh, Sweden? Oh, uh, Denmark and Sweden? No, what is that? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to go with Finland and Sweden. Finland and, and Sweden were at war for 800 plus years and then they became friends. I must might have messed up the flags. Hmm. Dalal, I want to hear your, your question. Um, answering K-Long's question, no, you don't get free residency when you come. Like, you don't get a home when you come here. Um, you can get assistance from different organizations, but you don't actually just get a free home. For example, I live here. My parents live. They have to rent out. Buying a place here is almost impossible. <laughs> um, it's very that'd bad. That'd be cool. That'd be cool um, to get a home. That'd be cool to actually get a free home. But no, you, you have to rent. You have to have the money to do it. Uh, you don't get it for free. Just the paperwork and the bureaucracy is much easier uh, in terms of the, uh, the law of the right of return for Jewish people. That terms, but you don't get a free home, no. Yeah, no. They, they, depending on where you come from, like there's certain organizations, you, you do get some kind of uh, benefits, like this one, you know, when I came 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I got, would get money every month in assistance and then another organization, Fish Benefish, gave me a few thousand dollars. Like they do try to help, but no, no home. I have to pay rent. Super expensive rent in Tel Aviv. Um, uh, Denmark and Sweden. Whoops, I, I messed up my. Uh, I gotta. I gotta learn the, the Scandinavian uh, flags better. Somebody's asking where you're from. If you're asking us, we're we're both Israeli. Uh, I'm Israeli American. One Israeli parent. One American parent. Paul, you have a similar story? Yeah, my, uh, yeah, similar. Okay, we're gonna wrap it. We're gonna wrap it up. Okay, Raja is that okay? Raja, you got it. You got it. We got you. Raja's asking, should there be a right of return for Palestinians? I think that we need equity. Actually, let me not use the let me not use the word equity because equity in social justice spaces today is kind of used as like same equality of outcome. Um, I think we need equality, so equal rights across the board. 
And if Jews are allowed to return after 2,000 years, then sure, Palestinians should be able to return. We do need to acknowledge that a country cannot absorb an infinite amount of people, so there should be a cap of how many Jews and how many Palestinians can return every year, let's say 30,000 for each. And Palestinians that lost their property in 1948 need to accept that they will not be able to move back to the same property if that house is inhabited because we don't create an injustice by creating a new, we don't create justice by creating a new injustice, injustice, but they should be compensated for getting their property, for losing their property. Um, that That's how I view it. Uh, whether in a federation or two state, one state paradigm, you know, the, how the right of return will look will be different. But yeah, I, I want equality on the Um, Bilal, Bilal uh, asked this question. Uh, let's see. Where? At 10.45. So Mona proposes how many Jews have returned so far should start with the same amount of Palestinians. No, I I disagree. I I think, I I really think that we should stick to equality and not try to do some kind of like retroactive or retributional form of equality that's often pushed in many social justice spaces today. Now, equality is equality. You know, if if we're going to say the land is equal, let's make it truly equal. The same amount of Jews that can return, Palestinians can return. Um, we, we need to understand that. We need to get Israelis on board with whatever solution. And if if this solution somehow puts them at a disadvantage, they're much less likely to accept it. So, you know, we, we, we don't need retroactive uh, uh, justice. It's, just, it, it's less likely to work. There's going to be more resistance. That's not equality. Um, did you find Bilal's question? Yeah, 1045 here. How's that? 1045. Okay. Bilal asks, how come the civilian death in Gaza are always blamed on Hamas when Israel itself was founded by a terrorist organization. I'm not sure I understand the question. I think the best way to put this in terms of the complexities of the Irgun, what their job was, not justifying or not, but it's complicated about what their relation is to the creation of the state of Israel because there's multiple dynamics to how that related. Um, Also in terms of Hamas, but this is just something when you're talking about the conflict, you have to realize that no one who's currently leading the government was leading the government and the parties in 1948, as in it's a, it's a different time period. So 
you have to talk also about certain actions that are getting taken now, as in one action that happens now doesn't justify the actions that happened in 1948 and vice versa. If something that happened in 1948, we condemn it, then it can also be condemned now. There, I don't, the relation between them, we can also just keep going back and saying, I, well, because of this, 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 this. But it's a little bit more complicated. It's not that um, going into your question, I'd be happy to speak with you in DMs and try to explain more the history component to it. But in just answering a question without me looking back at historical records would be a little bit hard for me. So, but um, I still think we're missing something in, in what was asked. Like I'm trying to understand it because they're, they're kind of saying he, he's saying that there's a hypocrisy because a little bit lower down he wrote, isn't that hypocrisy? How come the civilian death in Gaza are always blamed on Hamas when Israel is so like, uh, uh, well, for example, um, when the Irgun, there are, there are two main things that the Irgun is known for. One was the Diriyasin massacre, which is highly debated amongst the No, no, but, but Tao, ta, no, no, I understand what you're saying. What's the question, though? The question <laughs> is essentially is that what he's saying is that how, like, why are you blaming it um, on Hamas, any civilian deaths in Gaza? when you were founded by terrorism, essentially, and you don't have a justification to talk about them now. And I'm saying that there's, it's more complex than that in terms of what was happening. Um, deaths in, getting, it's a good question. The problem is that it's more than me just sitting here for 20, 20 minutes explaining it, but I would love to talk with you about okay. it in a private conversation and explain it. Uh, this, so this will be your last one. Porkchop goes, come on, that's a cop out of Dar. That's like displacing someone from their home and then telling them not to create another injustice by displacing you back. Uh, no, because the Israelis who live here today did not displace anybody. They were born here or they moved here legally. They did not harm a single individual to live where they live. So essentially what you're saying is, your grandparents did something wrong, therefore I'm going to punish you. If you think that's any way to create justice, do, do you really, does that like make sense? Seriously. I, I as a Jew who had most, most of my family murdered by Nazis, no German owes me anything. Germans are great people. The, most of the Germans I met are great people. They don't owe me anything. Um, they're not guilty for what the Nazis did. Everybody's born innocent. And oh, like multi-generational guilt is just not a concept we should try to normalize. It's, it's actually quite ridiculous. They're doing it in the United States as well. Like the social justice spaces are trying to go for this multi-generational guilt. We got to get over that. It makes no sense. We create justice without creating another injustice. It's not a radical idea. It's actually quite simple. There's enough land here for all of us. We can compensate people who got their property taken. Um, let's not confuse justice and retribution. They're not the same. And they often get in the way of one another. Um... Okay, Porkchop, one last one. He goes, you think displacement has stopped? 
Well, we see there's an example in Sheikh Jarrah, for example, where there's still a displacement. But 99% of the Palestinians that were displaced, that, yeah, that was in, in 48. And maybe, is there, were, were there 67 re- refugees, Tom? My, my history is not great, but re- re- no, I'm pretty sure. Nine, gonna, 90, I, I can't give you a finite answer, so I'm not going to comment. Okay. 99, and it might be more, it might be a few less, but the vast, vast majority of all refugees, all people who were displaced, that happened in 1948. It hasn't been, it hasn't been an ongoing um, displacement for the past 70 plus years. Um, but again, again, our framework should not be punishing people for the act for crimes they did not commit. Like it's just that's that's not justice. That's retribution. So it's not a cop out. It's just a much better way to to build a beautiful world. Um, okay, uh, Tom. Final thoughts. Um, I, I think it was really good. The conversations i think that even if questions can be worded in a way that you think is unfair or not good just try to dissect it of course i got some questions today that were just a little bit hard for me to dissect because i thought that there was a lot of components to it that i had to unravel and i decided that i don't want to say something on live that i'm not 100 percent sure about so i would like to like for myself to go back and make sure that i'm saying things that are correct historically and then give my own opinion on it but first i have to have the basis so that's that um, in general, I just hope that this, what's going on with Gaza and Israel ends soon enough. It's just more lives being lost. I hope that anyone here who lives in Israel or in Gaza or on the West Bank, I hope that everyone is okay and that everyone stays safe. And you can reach out to me on Twitter or Discord, but I'm mainly doing this stuff now on Twitter, which is uh, on Tal Hagen, the same username that you see here. And I'm open to questions or conversations and catch by my show on Wednesday evening. Tell me what you think. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tal. Uh, yeah, friends, thank you for joining us. This was actually our highest viewed live updates. We're going to continue to do things all week and all of next week. As, as long as, um, you know, the, this round of violence continues, we're going to be uh, doing this, giving updates as best we can. We hope you appreciate it. As always, if you want to reach out to me, um, you can find my contact information uh, below. Todd, we got a. I, didn't, I keep forgetting to put your contact information. If you want to get in touch with Tal, you could also reach out to me. I'll connect you with, with Tal, or you can find him in the Discord. Uh, just a reminder of what we have going on tomorrow, 8.30 p.m. I will be doing a live stream to review all the cringy memes and posts people have made the past uh, 10 days. There's a lot of them. It's going to be a, a lighthearted fun session. Tuesday night, I'm going to be doing a one-on-one live with the Palestinian in Gaza. It's going to be a, a very interesting and difficult conversation. Wednesday, we have Tal. Um, Tal's going to do his own solo session, analyzing the media in real time. And Thursday, we're going to try to get a panel, a group of Israelis and Palestinians going. Um, again, thank you all for being here. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe button. One last shout out to our uh, Patreon visionary members of Trivium Energy, PTYLTD, SOG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Animalbilia, and Raji, our one and only champion member. If you want to become a patron or support the show, you can find information in the description. Any support is greatly appreciated. Um, 
And yeah, with that, signing out, friends. Hoping for peace in the Holy Land. Stay 